That scene may or may not be familiar to you. Some of you remember the Berlin Wall. For those of you who don't remember, from 1961 until 1989, the city of Berlin and Germany was divided by a wall. That wall went up hastily in August of 1961. The communist government put it up essentially to keep people in communist East Germany from fleeing into the freedom of West Germany. And I'm haunted by the image of, of, of that death strip that, that between the wall and East Germany, where the East Germans were imprisoned in communism, was a strip of land that if you went across it, you'd encounter anti-tank mines, you'd encounter wire, you'd encounter dogs, and watchtowers manned by people who had orders to shoot to kill. I'm even more haunted, it just was briefly mentioned there, I wonder if you caught it, by that image of the church in the middle of the death strip. Between communist East Germany spanning across the death strip, bridging free West Germany, was the church. And did you hear the name of the church? The Church of the Reconciliation. Church of Reconciliation. Now, what does that have to do with today's sermon series? Well, that church became a symbol. In 1989, a prayer movement started that was connected with that church as pastors and people began to pray about the division between East and West Germany. And out of that prayer meeting, a protest movement formed that drew more than 70,000 people. And on October 9, 1989, that movement of people knocked down that wall. And it began with that church that was a symbol of reconciliation, reconciling people in the midst of the death strip. What does that have to do with today's sermon? Well, today we finish a series on reconciliation and forgiveness. And this is the last sermon in the series for the summer. I do need to say, you know, I've heard some offhand comments. They usually come to me second or third hand. Are, are we still talking about reconciliation? Can't we get off the subject? Can't we move on from the past and move on into the future? And here's what I want to lovingly say to you. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. This is not about the past. This is about the future. We are called to be that church of reconciliation in the death strip. Think about the people who live around us. Think about the people that you interact with every day. Some in your own families, some in your workplaces, some in your schools, some in your neighborhoods. These are people, if they don't know Jesus Christ, they are living in the death strip. They may appear to have life that, that goes on as normal. They may do appear to lead happy, functional lives, but that's only what we see on the surface. And the reality is, if they do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, they are living in the death strip. They are living in the spiritual equivalent of communist East Germany. And if they die in that state, if they die in that state without being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, they will perish into eternity. But we are the church of reconciliation in the death strip. God has put us strategically in this place 
where we proclaim the message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.18. God reconciles us to Himself through Jesus Christ. We proclaim that message to people in the death strip. But here's the problem. Here's the problem that these people living around us in the death strip are not going to hear our message until they see us living it out in our relationships. Until they see us living out this message, this ministry of reconciliation in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our church relationships. A reconciling culture is what draws people out of the death strip into the place where they can hear the message that they can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's why we've been here. It's because we're looking at what we want to be, not what we have been. We want to become the church of reconciliation in the death strip. So, picking up two from two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we looked at what does it mean when Jesus calls us, Luke 17, 3, if somebody sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. And even, I know it's not on the screen, but verse 4, even if they sin against you over and over again, seven times in a day, but come back to you and say, I repent, Jesus' command, not an option to us, you must forgive him. You must forgive her. We looked at that need, that imperative, that command to forgive last time. What I left unanswered, and what we're going to pick up with today is that qualifying language that you see there, that qualifying language, if he repents. What is the repentance that is necessary to open the way of forgiveness leading to reconciliation? What is that needed thing to close the loop, to bring about full forgiveness in the pursuit of authentic reconciliation? Well, let me ask you this this morning. What do you think about when you think about repentance? I think about Pete Rose. And again, I, that, that, may be, uh, that may be just a little old for some of you, but in the 1970s and in the 1980s, uh, Pete Rose was one of the most known baseball players in Major League Baseball. He had the reputation Mr. Baseball. In the 1980s, especially as the 1980s were closing out, he was accused and caught and convicted of cheating by betting on baseball, betting against, betting on his team or betting against his team in games that his team was playing. So in 1989, he was permanently banned from baseball. For the next 15 years, Pete Rose denied that he'd ever betted on a single game. And then suddenly in 2004, when he's releasing his autobiography, by the way, which he's releasing to make a profit off of. In that book, he admits, oh yes, I actually did bet on baseball games involving my team. And uh, just so you know, just to show you how sincere he is about his repentance, even today, he is willing to sell you through his personal website a personally autographed baseball with his words that say, I'm sorry, I bet on baseball for $249.99. Don't you have this warm feeling about his repentance there? Or I think about Senator Bob Packwood, who again is, is from the past, but he's so typical of what we've seen too much today in our politics. Senator Bob Packwood 
was, uh, was accused and evidence came out establishing that he had, he had over time sexually harassed numerous people on his office staff. When finally caught in it and finally forced to make a public statement, here's his heartwarming statement of repentance. If any of my comments or actions have indeed been unwelcome, or if I have conducted myself in any way that has caused individual discomfort or embarrassment, for that I am sincerely sorry. My intentions were never to pressure, to offend, or to make anyone feel uncomfortable, and I truly regret that it has occurred with anyone either on or off my staff. Again, don't you just feel warm from that genuine expression of, of confession and repentance? No, no, neither of those are, are, are real apologies. Both of those kinds of apologies, actually, if anything, they make us more cynical. If someone hurts you, if someone offends you, if someone sins against you, and then gives you that kind of lame apology, it really just aggravates. It just really makes worse what they've already done. Actually, it might surprise you to learn that apologizing is not found in the Bible. Did you realize that? You can look up in your concordance. I mean, some paraphrases may bring the term in, but you take reliable versions and you look up and you will never find any form of the word apology or apologizing. Why, why is that? Well, I, I like what Jay Adams has to say. The biblical writers never equate apologizing with seeking forgiveness. Actually, apologizing is not only unscriptural, it is the world's unsatisfactory substitute for real forgiveness, for real repentance, for moving towards real reconciliation. Do you realize that? When we are doing these kinds of apologies, what we're doing is, is we're, we're, we're offering something that, that not only doesn't work, it is totally unsatisfying. The good news is, though, through Scripture, Scripture reveals through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it teaches us something that goes well beyond apologizing, that does satisfy, that does lead to repentance, that does lead to forgiveness and reconciliation. Apologizing is an unbiblical substitute because actually, for you and me, it can be a way to avoid seeking or granting forgiveness. Think about it. When I say to you, well, I am sorry if you were offended by something that I said, am I taking any responsibility for anything that I have done? Now, really what I'm doing is I am shifting the burden onto you. If you were the one offended, it must be up to you that this has occurred between the two of us. I am avoiding taking any responsibility. And think of the other side of that, of an insincere apology. When you say in response to me, well, you know, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Are you actually forgiving me? No, you're not. You're not releasing that. You haven't issued any, any forgiveness towards me. So apology being an unscriptural concept leads to an unsatisfactory result on both sides. That's why uh, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, tells us that when you look at the original form of apology, the first meaning of the word was something that is said or written in defense of or justification of what appears to others to be wrong. That's where we get the word apologetics from, that that's issuing a, a, a defense 
And that's exactly what our human, our fleshly tendency to do is. When we're accused of doing something wrong, our inner defenses are activated. And we, we want to offer excuses for what we've done. We, we want to defend. We want to highlight the extenuating and mitigating circumstances that we think surround the incident. We want to explain how pure our motives are. We want to explain how misunderstood we're being if they think that we have actually sinned against them. So apologizing falls far short of the repentance that Jesus speaks of. Well, what about regret? What if I apologize to you, but I feel really bad about what I've done, and I express to you how terrible I feel about what has happened? Does that mean that I'm repentant? Well, not necessarily, not by itself. Regret is not by itself repentance. Think for a moment about what these four biblical men have in common. Think about Pharaoh, King Pharaoh of Egypt in the midst of the plagues in in, uh, Exodus chapter 9. He says, uh, when caught from a plague, he says, I have sinned. Is he repentant? Think of Achan, who is caught having kept what the Lord says was to be devoted to the Lord and destroyed in Joshua chapter 7. He says, I have sinned. There's an expression of regret. Is he repentant? Think of King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, who's been caught as a king doing something that God only authorized a priest to do. And when caught in that by Samuel, admits, I have sinned, expresses regret. Is he repentant? Or think of Judas having betrayed Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, saying in 27 verse 4, I have sinned. Is he repentant in his regret? No, these four men not only have in common that they have all said, I have sinned, that they express some form of regret, but these men all have in common that right now they are in hell. Why? Because their regret led them away from God, not to God. So merely feeling bad about what I've done, merely feeling regret is not by itself repentance. In fact, Paul tells us the difference between this and 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow, godly sorrow brings repentance that, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. There's, there's a picture of regret versus repentance. Regret is worldly sorrow. It's the sorrow, it's the bad feeling I feel when I'm caught in my sin, when, when, I, when what I've been doing has, has been brought out into the light, when there are consequences now that I have to face because of what I've been caught in. In contrast to that is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is Godward. Godly sorrow is acknowledging that I have sinned first against God. Godly sorrow, it says, that brings repentance, leads me, leads you to a fuller saving experience of Christ's work on the cross for us, of the gospel. And and, in that way, it leaves no regret. It, It leads as God leads us through that and heals us through it. It leads no bad feelings, no hard feelings. Godly sorrow that brings repentance moves you and me to seek God's mercy, embracing it through Jesus Christ. Well, what does genuine repentance look like? If it's not apologizing, and it's not just feeling bad, it's not just some form of regret, what does it actually look like? And again, I take you back to Luke 17. 
Because if I'm to forgive my brother, Jesus says there, it's when he or she repents, expresses repentance to you or to me. And so we need to have some indication of what Jesus says genuine repentance looks like if we're going to know how to complete the circle leading to reconciliation. I think Jesus' clearest picture of what genuine repentance looks like is in a parable that most of you, if not all of you know, you think of it as the parable of the prodigal son. Most of your versions of the Bible refer to it as the parable of the two sons and Luke chapter 15. Uh, I'm not going to hit all the aspects of this. I'm going to focus simply on the details of this story that really speak to Jesus' picture of repentance. But Jesus begins in Luke 15, 11, there was a man who had two sons And the younger one at one point said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property between them. Now we read through that pretty fast, but I want you to understand the cultural impact about what the son was doing. When is it that typically under law we get our inheritance from our parents? It's when they die, right? So I want you to think about essentially what this young man is communicating to his father. Basically, he's saying this, Father, you're no good to me alive. You're really only good to me for what you can do for me after you die. And unless there's some legal way for you to do that now, I have no more use for you. I would rather that you be dead. Now, can you consider the impact of that upon the father. What a great offense that was. Even more, what a deep hurt that was for a father to hear from his son that I would rather you be dead because what I really want from you, as far as I know, can only be done if you're dead. Well, this father apparently went through whatever legal procedure was needed to be able to do that before he died and gave the young man his inheritance And most of you know the details of the story. In verse 13, the younger son gathered all he had together, including this inheritance, and he set off for a distant country. And there, leaving his culture behind, leaving his home and his family behind, he spent his inheritance. He squandered his wealth on wild living. Now again, there's a lot we could comment on in this, this young man's story, but I want to look specifically with a laser focus at the picture of of repentance that Jesus gives us here. And it begins, at least as I have studied and prayed through this, it begins both in the young man's life and in our lives as God brings repentance. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, God brings brokenness. Look at verse 14. The young man began to be in need. He found that what he'd gotten from his father, what he'd offended his father by asking for, was not satisfying to him, was not meeting his needs. Reminds me of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says that when we look to God as the spring of living water, he fills us with what ultimately satisfies our thirst. But when we turn away from that, which is all of us and all of our tendency, we try to satisfy our thirst by digging cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Can you visualize that image? There's this beautiful flowing spring, and we turn away from it and try to dig out of the hard ground something that will hold water, and all it holds is muddy, polluted water, and what little water it holds is cracked, and so it drains out. We can never satisfy our thirst. 
That's the experience of the young man here. That's our experience whenever in our sin we turn away. God begins to show us, it begins to dawn on us how unsatisfying what we've been pursuing in our sin actually is, how it fails to satisfy what we really need. Verse 15, he hired himself out to feed pigs. Now again, you need to understand the cultural impact of this. We may view that just as manual labor, but for a Jewish young man, pigs were religiously unclean. And so for him to take labor where he was actually having regular contact, actually feeding pigs, was really illustrative of the fact that he'd reached a point of, of desperation, of, of really of debasement. Sometimes God lets us hit the bottom before he begins to bring us up and turn our attention up. I think about the point of debasement that a friend of mine who's now a pastor in Portland reached when he woke up in his own vomit on the floor of a city jail. And that is the point where he realized, I am like, I'm like this young man feeding the pigs. I have reached my absolute lowest point. Can I go any lower? God often, not as punishment, not because he's a harsh, unloving God, just the opposite, because he is a loving God, allows us to hit oftentimes in our hardened, hardened state, allows us to hit that point of debasement, that lowest part. Verse 16, even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. Pods are probably the shells of carob beans that, um, that, that, were, that grow in that area of the world. We're not exactly sure, but that's probably what they were. These are the pods. This is the equivalent of you and I not having access to the ear of corn and eating instead the husks of the corn because we're so hungry that that's all we have to eat, and so we take advantage of it. Again, he'd reached a point of desperation, and genuine repentance often begins there with God breaking us in, our de- in desperation, breaking us of our pride, breaking us of our self-reliance, breaking us of our self-righteousness, reducing us down to that place, whatever equivalent that may be to you or my life. This is not a harsh, hateful, angry, punishing God. This is a loving God who seeks to get our attention by breaking us of our pride and of our self-righteousness. Secondly, God convicts you. Repentance begins with God bringing about brokenness. It continues as God, through His Holy Spirit working in us, begins to convict us. Look at verse 17. He came to His senses. Think of it this way. Every form of sin, no matter how little it is in our lives, every form of sin that we cling to is really a form of what we could call temporary insanity. And I use the word very deliberately. What is insanity? Insanity is not being able to perceive reality. It is looking at events around us and and the situation around us and not seeing that accurately, seeing it actually with a distorted view. That's sin. When we grasp onto something that we won't let go, that is sin, that God has said, that is not what I have for you. That's drinking out of the broken cistern, not drinking out of the spring of living water. We have a form of temporary insanity. And we see the events around us. We make a narrative around us that is distor- that's distorted from what reality actually is around us. Conviction 
is God beginning to bring us to our senses. You see it in this young man's life. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Suddenly he begins to see reality for what it is around him. And that's conviction. Conviction leading to repentance causes us to see things maybe for the first time as they really are, to begin to see even the log in our own eye, to see the ways that we have contributed, that we have been part of the situation that, where we feel we have been sinned against. This, uh, by the way, I think gives us hope. When, when we have a loved one who's caught in some sin and we try to reason with them and we try to be more forceful with them and we seem to be unable to break through to them, we pray for conviction. I love how Paul teaches us how to do this in 2 Timothy 2.25. He writes this as a statement, but I think this is a model for a prayer. God, grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they would come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. What does that acknowledge? It acknowledges I can't make somebody repent. It acknowledges that I can't bring somebody to their senses, but God can. And so I pray, God, do the work your Scripture tells me that you can do. God, grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth out of their insanity so that they would come to their senses and escape from the hold that Satan has on them in their sin. Thirdly, repentance, as it begins with brokenness and continues with conviction, leads us to the place, number three, where you turn from your sin. And by the way, that's literally what the word repentance means. It means to turn around. And that's exactly what we see in the sun. He, see, he turns from the direction that he'd been going in that foreign land. He turns around and he goes back to the Father. He intentionally returns to the Father. And that's what we see in the first half of verse 18. I will get up and I will go to my Father. He doesn't stay there in the misery of his regret. He doesn't remain passive. The brokenness in him, the conviction to intentionally get up, take responsibility, and go to initiate the conversation that he needs to have with the Father. And that's repentance. That's at least what it begins to look like. Our repentance moves us to go to the person that we are conflicted with and initiate the conversations that we need to have in order to pursue reconciliation. Brokenness leads to conviction, leads to us turning from our sin. Fourth, in doing so, in coming to that person, you confess. You confess, which involves both agreeing with God and agreeing with the other person that we have sinned against, that we have sinned. In fact, if the literal meaning of repent is to turn around, the literal meaning of confess is to say the same thing. Confession is first saying the same thing as God says. God, I've been hiding from the fact that I have sinned in these ways, but I see now what your word says, and I agree that's the way I have sinned against you. Confession also means agreeing with the other person that I have sinned against. It is saying, you know what? I've been convicted by God. I've gone to his word. He has shown me where I have sinned against him, but he's shown me where I've sinned against you. And I have been wrong. I did wrong. I sinned against you. 
And that's what we see in the second half of verse 18. He goes to the Father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, that's against God, and I've sinned against you. Genuine repentance always involves accepting responsibility for what we have done. It always involves honestly confessing our specific actions, our specific omissions, even the attitudes that we have been harboring in our heart against the other person, even sometimes against God. Actions, omissions, attitudes that God has convicted us of. Finally, you humble yourself. God brings about brokenness, leading to conviction. He turns us in our sin. He brings us to the place of confession. And in the midst of that confession, we humble ourselves, meaning we seek mercy from the other person that we have sinned against. We accept even the consequences and commit to working through the consequences of the situation that we've created. Look at the, this in the son's words in verse 19. He goes to the father, and what does he say? I'm ready to be your son again. I'm ready to take over as the heir of all of your, uh, your, your estate. No, he says, I am no longer even worthy to be called your son. In fact, I don't even deserve it, but if you would have mercy on me, would you treat me even as one of your hired servants? You see the contrast? He left his father so filled with pride, so filled with himself, But the events of his life, God has used those hard events in his life to strip him of all of that pride. And now God in his loving goodness does that in our lives. He brings us to the place, stripping us of our pride, where we see what has been reality all along. We are undeserving. We are unworthy. Just as we come to the foot of the cross, offering nothing of any worth in us, being totally undeserving and unworthy. And so now this young man, feeling a deep sense of unworthiness, makes no more claim for any kind of status. He doesn't make any demands. He doesn't say that he deserves anything. He simply asks for his Father's mercy. And that's what God-wrought humility looks like in our lives. We don't go before God. We don't go to the other person we've sinned against and make any demands or make any claims. Why? Because we know we're unworthy. We know we need mercy. We humbly ask for the mercy of forgiveness from God and from that other person or persons. And in doing that, God bringing about that kind of repentance that begins and brokenness and goes to conviction and causes us to turn around in our sin and go to that person and to the Lord and confess and to do that humbly, asking only for mercy. What is the response? What's the response of the Father? Well, He really models what we saw back in Luke 17.3. If He repents, forgive Him. And even if He sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you and repents seven times, you must forgive him. And that's exactly what the father does. Verse 22 of Luke 15, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Kill the calf we've been saving and let's celebrate with a feast. He does the very things that the son was not deserving of. He gives him the status of a son, of an heir, with the robe and the ring and the feast. 
And by the way, this is what our Father, our Father God, does for us when we turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, when we come to the foot of the cross in total unworthiness, not deserving anything but condemnation and punishment. The Father, through Christ's sacrifice, makes us His children. He puts a robe on us. He puts a ring on our our finger. He invites us to His banquet feast. We become part of His family. We become His children. And that's how, as God has forgiven us in Christ, we are called to forgive each other. Let me leave you this morning with four closing applications. These are very brief, but these are very much to the point. How can we practically become reconciling people? How can practically, as as we grow in these things, how can we become the church of reconciliation in the dead zone? First of all, instead of apologizing, let's practice biblical confession. Let's, Let's avoid taking the unsatisfactory shortcut of apologizing. Don't substitute the impotent cultural model of apology for the strong biblical principle of confession. Just just hear the words of James. James 5.16, speaking to believers among themselves. Confess your sins to each other. So it's not that we should be saying, well, I'm, I'm sorry if I offended you. If you've been hurt, I'm really sorry you were hurt. It's not, uh, it's not I'm, I'm sorry that you got so upset about what you think that I did. No, let's use the strong biblical language. I was wrong. I sinned against you when I, and then let's fill in the blank. And by the way, that leads to my second application. How do we fill in the blank? Instead of vague generalities, let's name our sin specifically. Generic confessions cause the other person to really doubt whether we understand that we've really hurt them at all or how we've hurt them. They cause the other person to doubt whether we're really taking this seriously when we don't specifically name how it is we've been convicted that we've sinned against them. James says not only confess, he says confess your sins. Identify the biblical term for how you have sinned. Don't, don't use psychological terms. Don't use what the terms of, or concepts of pop culture. Go into the Word in prayer. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to the specific biblical sins. I have sinned against you by lying. I have sinned against you by gossiping. I have sinned against you in my rebellion. I have sinned against you by my lust. And even if there is no overt action, allow God to show you your missions and your attitudes and confess them. I have sinned against you because in my heart I have been bitter. I have sinned against you because I have been stubborn. I have sinned against you because I have been unself-righteous or ungrateful or disrespectful or whatever it may be. Let's be specific. Let's name our sin. There is a power and a confession that goes beyond the vague generalities and names the sin. Third, when we make that confession, instead of inserting disclaimers, let's acknowledge the the hurt that our sin has caused the other person. Let's even acknowledge that there are some consequences that are going to need to be worked through. Let me say it this way. You want to ruin a confession? 
You can start out a confession just great, and you can ruin it as soon as you insert a disclaimer. As soon as you begin to, along with really good words, now begin to insert an explanation that seems to minimize or seems to somehow excuse your guilt or even to shift the blame to the other person. I mean, that's what Bob Packwood, Senator Bob Packwood did. Gee, it was never my intention to offend or hurt anyone. What is implied in that disclaimer? If you were offended, if you were hurt, it's on you. You're the problem, not me. When we say a statement like, I'm so sorry if you were offended by what you thought I heard, you heard me say, we have just weaseled out. We have just disclaimed ourselves out of any kind of effective confession leading to repentance and reconciliation. Let's make a full biblical confession with no disclaimers. Let's even acknowledge the hurt. When we go to that person, let's listen to the person compassionately long enough to really hear how they have been affected by our sin. Let's show them even by how we reflect that back to them that we understand at least a little bit of the impact. You know, I see how terribly shamed and embarrassed you were by what I said when I gossiped against you. That begins to get it a little bit of, I have, I have thought through and I have prayed and I have been convicted of how I have hurt you. And let's even be willing to accept the consequences. Not that they're frozen in time, but this is what we see in the Son. I am no longer worthy to be called your Son. He accepts the consequences. I, 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 I put you out of my life as my Father, and so as I come back to you, I realize the consequences are you may never want me to be your son again. I realize I've made it difficult for you to trust me, but I want to work on restoring that trust between us. That's a beginning of beginning to accept the consequences, but making a commitment to work through those consequences. And finally, instead of ending our confession with, I'm sorry, let's humbly ask for forgiveness. Now, this may seem just a play on words to you. I know that oftentimes when we say we're sorry, we tend to assume that in saying that, the other person assumes that we're asking them for forgiveness. But that assumption, I believe, is flawed. And a good confession, a biblical confession, actually puts ourselves out there. It actually doesn't stop with a statement. It it ends with a question. It makes a request. Will you forgive me? Consider the model of Abigail to David in 1 Samuel 25, 28. She's confessing for sins, and it weren't even hers, but were her husband's and her household's. And how does she conclude how she comes to David and entreats him? 1 Samuel 25, 28. Please forgive the sin of your servant. She makes a request. By asking the other person to forgive us, we recognize, we acknowledge that we can't forgive ourselves, that we need their mercy just as we need God's mercy through Christ. We put ourselves literally in their hands as we make that request. And that's what a real confession looks like, a full-throated biblical confession looks like. Brothers and sisters, this is what we want to practice more and more. If we're going to be that church of reconciliation in the death strip, 
The practice of confession and forgiveness has to be the air that we breathe. I love how Jim Van Yipperen puts it. Reconciliation is living in the light of confession and forgiveness. I want to live in the light of that confession and that forgiveness. I want that to be part of the culture of Central Church and of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Alfred Poyer says, the seam of reconciliation is sown through the process of confession and forgiveness. I want to be men and women who are continually sowing that seam, making us the church of reconciliation in the death strip. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you. We know, Lord, at, all, at one time all of us were living in the death strip. All of us were in the darkness and enslavement of sin. We didn't know the light. We didn't know the truth. And Jesus, you found us and you reached out to us. And as we came to you in repentance and faith, you forgave our sins You have reconciled us to God the Father through your sacrifice, through your resurrection, through your work. And now you have given to us, 2 Corinthians 5.18, the ministry of reconciliation. Lord Jesus, we want to be people who are bringing lost people, people in the death strip to the cross. We want to be people, Lord, who are living with each other and in our marriages and in our families and friendships in such a way that people see a reconciling culture and want to explore what they sense is is the way into the light. We need you to do this work, Lord. Make us people of reconciliation. Make us people of confession and forgiveness, that you would be lifted up. We pray this, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.